Alrighty, folks, welcome back to SDYT, the podcast. I'm Porter. I'm your host. And here in the month of June now, we're talking about balance, learning, and loyalty as our primary core values for the month. Uh, just remember, though, it's real people with different perspectives talking over shared values. So there may be some topics that we disagree on. There may be some facts that we have differing opinions on. But that's the whole point of being able to encourage a conversation and dialogue with people maybe that you see things differently from. Communication to survive is a vital skill set that requires introspection, that requires honesty with yourself. And like you'll hear in this upcoming interview, that also requires a certain amount of authenticity in how you value and view your own self-identity and what confidence you build for yourself. For all of our new listeners to the podcast, first of all, welcome. And for all of our continuing listeners, welcome back. Folks, I'm Porter. I'm your host. And this is SDYT, the podcast. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to SDYT, the podcast. Again, I'm Porter. I'm your host. We're covering balance, learning, and loyalty here in the month of June. Uh, special guest, this particular interview, uh, a high school buddy of mine, actually. So we're talking now, almost going on 20 years ago, I think it's been since we've been able to touch base. She's done a lot of super cool things in the field of social work, as a teacher, as a guide and mentor, and active listener as we're going to come to find out. But Anna Sibylrod Willis, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you today. Yeah, you're welcome. I, I appreciate you being able to stop in and to all of our listeners. Also, again, welcome. For all of our listeners, you're a voice in a radio. You're somebody in a headphone. You're totally distant from whoever they are. But I'm willing to bet Based on your experiences and your perspective, you're probably not that far off, especially from what you've experienced and working with other people as well. So let's just start there before we get into any of this other stuff. Who are you? What, what makes you you? You know, where are you from? What do you do? Uh, what's life like for Anna? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a social worker. I'm a clinical medical social worker, master level. So a lot of people are not really sure what that means. I <laughs> currently work in the capacity for hospice care and in play therapy. And what I notice is that people automatically assume that, oh, social worker, are you going to take me out of my house? And that is always the, I mean, at least 70% of the time, that's what I get. So I always like to kind of clarify what a social worker does, and especially a master social worker, because we get a bad name and we get a bad rap. So a lot of times how that happens is uh, people will work for DCF and, you know, that that is what their role is when they are removing children from homes, if that needs to happen like that. But my role is that I'm mental health therapy support slash social work where that comes into play is we can only be as mentally healthy as our environment allows us to be. We can sit there and focus on what we need to do to change our mind, and that is helpful and that is effective. However, there are often things in our environment that we can change that would make us overall better people and help us along our road of life, if you will. Sure. So then what is your environment? What is, what is your sphere of influence look like then? Because some of our listeners may be in, in a similar situation, right? Like you've got kids and you said you graduated, got your master's level certification. 
Yes. Yeah. So I have um, my master's degree in social work and I also have a graduate certification in working with military families. Mm. So hence why I was excited to talk to you about that too, because, you know, I do have a passion for uh, military families. And as we've talked about on the side of this, my husband is a firefighter paramedic. So I do see aspects of our, what we see, what we hear and how that really could affect us and make us into a place where we are trying to understand people and things more accurately. Yeah. 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 I assume there should be uh, a fair amount of self-discovery or or your own journey in in trying to understand the how and the why of your own life before you start trying to relate to the how and the why of other people's. Right. right? That's so what what does that, what does that journey look like for you? Yeah, that, that is totally true. So what I would say that journey looked like for me is that my husband, you know, he went into being a firefighter and I was dealing with, I guess I would say the emotions that he had for his own job and the things he saw and the lack of sleep and how people react and interact and that sort of thing. And a lot of times in social work, we call that secondhand trauma. Mm-hmm. So I would say that he would unload sometimes certain things to me. He didn't necessarily mean to do that, but I realized that it was adding stress and pressure to myself. But then I also felt like, how could I just leave him alone to struggle in that as my husband? So there was that facet of it. But then our son was born. Um, you know, I was a teacher. So I thought that when he was born, it would be no big deal to be a mom. because I was a teacher. I know Mm -hmm. all the things to be a mom. But then he came along and really rocked my world. And turns out that he has ADHD. I used to say, Oh, my gosh, he was such an unsettled, like he just would cry and cry and get hyper fixated. And I got a daughter now. And she just, uh, you know, she's the typical three year old, but she does not compare to the big wild emotions that Mm -hmm. came with ADHD, which is a very, you know, a lot of people think of a little boy with ADHD as not being able to sit still. And that's not really always true. It's sometimes just you get so focused on doing something so like almost fixated on it they call it hyper focus that if somebody breaks it it's just devastating for you so I noticed that then he was adding to this and I was getting to the point where it felt so overwhelming trying to be all these people to all these people (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, because at the time I was teaching, so I was giving my all in teaching, giving my all to my child that ended up with ADHD, but I didn't know that at the time. He just was a baby and toddler that seemed very unsettled, which I come to learn that that's a very common thing. People with ADHD are often unsettled babies, even. They just cry a lot. They just, because they're, they're want to do one thing and you're taking them away from it. Mm-hmm. That's what they want to do. That and then also my aunt, she's a military social worker, kind of drove me down to really want to be there for people and show them that you can pull on your bootstraps and help yourself. 
there was a lot of years that I felt like, oh my gosh, how can I do this? How can I be the wife to this person? And how can I be the mother to this person? But I would say that gathering a big awareness, I had to go to a therapist myself to figure out how to deal with these things. And what I realized in all of it is that I was not being authentic to myself. I was trying really, really hard to solve issues for other people. And it's kind of like teaching a man to fish Mm -hmm. versus handy, you know, so that's kind of social work in a nutshell, is that you teach people how to help themselves. And I think that that's the difference between going to like a mental health counselor versus going to a social worker, because it's not just about what's in your brain, you're able to effectively get past things. And I've seen it a million times, you just have to reframe and rework it. So would you say then that as as a social worker, Mm -hmm. that it's maybe even more helping people integrate into society's definition Mm -hmm. and requirements for being social, like how to socialize themselves, essentially? I would say so. Um, Yeah, I do agree with that. But I would also say it's a little deeper than that. It's, It's really finding out what makes you tick. And what are the things you like and the things that you dislike? Because a lot of times, when you find yourself in a place of extreme anxiety, or depression, you're not, not that it's all about you, you know, because the first, the the second you make it all about you, you're not going to find wellness there either, you know, but it's just having an awareness of how people are and what they do. And the fact that it's like, I don't have to make that mean something about me, you know, how they act and what they do is them projecting something off of them. And so allowing people to see that is really the first step in seeing them have a better life. You feel the need to even people please or walk on eggshells around people, which is what I felt like I needed to do. You know, I have this son with ADHD. He kind of had moods. My husband, you know, he'd have his things from work and he'd have his moods. And I felt like I needed to be like a people pleaser. And it's like there's feelings are not facts. You know, they're just they're just a feeling. And mm-hmm. so just because somebody is acting a certain way or doing a certain thing doesn't mean that you have to let that mean something about you. Because who are you? What is your identity? Sure. What are the things that you need out of it? And I think that before I was just so wrapped up in helping. And then that was the teacher in me. You know, how can I help people? And to me, being a social worker has changed that completely because it's not about me. And it's not because I just know all these great things. Yeah. It's not It's not about that. It's about how can I help you be the best version of your own self, which doesn't include me putting myself on you. It just sure. helps you be you. Yeah. And so what would be the first step in that? to find out who your identity is and what makes you authentic. Yeah. So I guess that level of awareness is probably the hardest. Well, no, I'd I'd say it's probably a difficult part. The hardest part is probably accepting that. Right. Whatever it is. But, but as you, as you identify it, right, like your emotions still have validity, but Mm -hmm. they really are just responses to some sort of a catalyst that somebody else is responding to their own issues, right? So despite the complexity, yeah, I mean, you still have a right to feel a certain way. 
absolutely. You, you can, no, no, don't get me wrong. Like you said, you felt like at one point walking on eggshells was a necessity and maybe it was to pacify the moment and manage the situation until you were able to address your own emotions or whatever. Like somebody has to compromise the first place position. Yep. Right. But yeah, but, but the ideal compromise and to a point you brought up about ADHD. So getting fixated on a topic and then getting your attention having your attention broken. So I have ADHD, but it's, I guess, a bit more manageable now, but it took me 30 years to make right. it more manageable. Things that worked for me, I started having, I guess it still varies, right? Like I've got days where I'm just, I, well, like you said, I'm hyper-focused on whatever the task is. And it, it could be the smallest thing, a knock on the door, anything. But if I get interrupted, I'm never going to get my way back to there. It's, it's not yeah. going to happen. And then I'm going to stare at a wall for three or four hours because I'm so mentally exhausted from whatever energy I put into those couple hours or minutes or whatever That's of right. focus that now I'm good for nothing. I'll stare at a wall and not realize I'm doing it for an hour yeah. to sort of yeah. unwind and rebound. Those, I guess, at, at the risk of a DSM violation, those those bipolar opposites of, of emotional swings make it difficult to manage or multitask anything. Mm -hmm. And as a kid... Man, it would take me six, seven hours to do homework every day. Yeah, for, for what? Because then I'm not going to eat. I'm not doing anything. I just got to focus on this, but I don't want to. I'm thinking about, you know, watching Dragon Ball Z or going to play in the backyard or whatever your thing is. Yeah. And two of the things that I found to help me, there's, well, first off, there's a guy on Instagram. He's got some pretty good content out. I'm pretty sure his handle is Dr. Brian FTW. I don't know what the FTW is for, but either way, I'm pretty sure his handle is Dr. Brian FTW. You can find him on Instagram okay. and it's advice. He, he, according to the videos he puts out, advice for ADHD by ADHD. Mm. And he's a doctor. Mm. So he puts this stuff out there. Uh, so there, there's a lot of good relational advice on there. But one of the things that I found that worked for me in managing my ability to be distracted or come back to a point uh, is, is lists. Uh, you know, I've got probably seven different pads of paper and four different whiteboards in this office, but it works. Right. So then I, I can, I can write down where I'm at and say, well, this is where I left off. So this is where I need to pick up. Now, the problem that I've run into and more regularly continue to run into is the how of a process. For example, if I get distracted and I'm working on a task where it's got, I don't know, three different bullet points I've got to put together. Well, then something happens that breaks my focus. So I'll make a note of what happens at that point in time or where I left off. But then if I come back to it, I don't know how to pick that back up. I don't know what got me there. I don't know how to get to the end. I don't know what train of thought I had. I don't yeah. know the how about the process. And so I'll also write down whatever my thought is, whatever I'm at, as deliberate and detailed as I can make it. And then when I go back to it, I'll be close enough. So maybe that'll help with your son or other people that are listening for that matter. That's something that I've found to work for me that so far is as effective as I need it to be in my life at this point. So you had mentioned something before we started recording that it's important to be good at what you're good at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that sounds like such a reflexively rhetorical type phrase. It almost is illogical. So what do you mean? Yeah. Okay. So I guess bringing it back to you and me, I realized after my son was diagnosed with ADHD when he was six the doctor had given me a piece of paper and he says, well, which one of you probably has ADHD? You or his dad. And I said, neither of us. Are you kidding? No, neither of us have ADHD. Um, and so he gave me this adult checklist and I went home and I threw it at his dad and I said, um, 
there you go. You have adult ADHD. <laughs> and uh, he was like looking at the list, looking at the list. And he's like, you know, I, I think it might be you. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, well, that's crazy. So I looked at the list and yeah, sure enough, I was then diagnosed at the same time with ADHD. So I realized growing up, I didn't really feel that good at anything. I was never really like great at something. Mm -hmm. And that's because my interest was everywhere. Like I want to know this and this and this. And like every morning I'd wake up and I'd think, you know what? Today I got to know the ins and outs of how salmon (laughs) migrate or whatever. Yeah, migrate, (laughs) spawn, like whatever they do. Like, you know, not today is the day. And I don't really care that I have other things to do today. I got to know about those salmon. So I realized that that was something that drove me. And I felt like I didn't have a lot of self-confidence because it, it always seemed like everybody else was getting something that I wasn't getting. Like mentally. And yeah, like, yeah, like it felt like people knew about something I didn't know about. Yeah. You, know, and, and you just feel lost. Yes, like so lost. And obviously we went to private school together, so I don't know if that had something to do with it. But when I first started going to public school in 10th grade, I had a guidance counselor that told me, ooh, um, maybe you might want to drop out and get your GED because we find that kids that come from private schools just simply cannot, especially the private school you came from, No, they never do well. That's what she told me. So she says, you know, I was in 10th grade, I was 16. And she felt like, why don't you just go, you could, you could get your GED, you could finish like, you know, going to like a vocational school or something. And I remember just being so devastated by that, because it felt like, you know, I always felt like there was something a little bit wrong with me and that that was confirmation mm-hmm. that I really was not smart enough. And I, and it was kind of like I always knew it, but that was like the first time that I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm really not like to the point it. that they literally don't even think I can just make it through high school. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is like, I was never cared about high school that much. I don't want to say I did, but I really, I still graduated with like a 3.2. It wasn't like I, you know, had a, just a terrible GPA or a terrible reason that somebody would say that to me. You know what I mean? It wasn't like I was just a horrible student or anything, but it really just kind of catapulted me on a path of like, I'm not really that good at anything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a common trait for people with ADHD because you're just going, am I blanking out and missing something? And your description of ADHD is like spot on because it's exactly right. Like the other day I was trying to do something and some sales roof guy Mm. was knocking at my door and I'm just like, who is knocking at the door? Who in the world could be knocking at the door? And so I go and look out there and I didn't even open the door. I just looked out the window, but like, sure enough, done done now I'm done with whatever I was doing I can't I can't even bring myself to come back to it and and do it because it just feels way too overwhelming yeah the potentially I guess resulting anxiety or resulting frustration or just stress because you're an adult so there's timelines and deadlines 
There just is. Maybe not in your line of work, but in your life there has to be, right? Like I've got to get this done before I got to pick the kids up from school. Definitely. Okay. Or I got to get this started before they wake up mm-hmm. or who knows, whatever. Yeah. yeah. So there's just going to be deadlines by virtue of growing up and adulting. And that just right. is what it is. And I agree that makes it very difficult. Mm-hmm. I had an opportunity at work where it was exclusively timeline driven you know, go do these things, finish up these tasks by this time, period, full stop. That's it. Okay. Well, if everybody else in this office is going to have conversations for the next two hours, I've just lost two hours of potentially being able to be, it doesn't matter if I've got headphones. It doesn't matter if I've got whatever it's gone, it's gone. And then it's going to take me another couple hours to refocus, which means really I've got a half hour to get all that stuff done and it's not realistic. Right. Right. So in the military, more often than not, well, that's your problem, not mine. Okay, and right, wrong, or indifferent, that's been an uphill battle for me, primarily since I enlisted, because you're forced to take ownership of those instances and then find ways to work through them or crumble. Those are the only right. two options. The flip side, I think, of that, even outside the military, is as I understand diagnoses, their opinions mm-hmm. backed by medical that's fact. Right. That's right. So they're also based on, as I understand them, their impact to your daily life and routine. Yeah. So if there's a minimal impact, well, you may not receive a diagnosis that doesn't degrade or detract from the fact that there may be an issue you need to resolve or address. Right, right. And I think that middle ground, at least as I'm understanding it now, is where social workers can definitely fill a niche because you haven't received a diagnosis, but you're feeling how you're describing where there's issues and things you just need to contend with and work through or talk through, whatever. Right, right. But you don't know how then there, there's a definite place to start. But before we get a little bit deeper into some of these principles and concepts and constructs as applicable to social working, and let's take a break for a couple minutes. Okay. And everybody listening, sit tight for a few minutes. We'll be right back on SDYT, the podcast. Alrighty, folks. This is Porter with the Transacting Value Podcast. If you haven't heard of Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let me tell you about it. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. That means from an app, a desktop, both. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or even Stitcher. And there's plenty more where you can choose from. It's basically all you need to make a podcast all in one place. And Anchor is totally free. So if you're interested and you want to find some value for your values... Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. If you're looking for high quality, locally sourced groceries, the Keystone Farmer's Market is the place to be. Alongside our signature homemade boiled peanuts, we strive to offer only the best locally sourced pasta, baked goods, jams and jellies, farm eggs and dairy products, meats, and even seafood, as well as a great selection of fresh produce. That's the Keystone Farmer's Market. 12615 Tarpon Springs Road in Odessa, Florida. The place with the boiled peanuts. This is Jimmy Mullen, host of Discussions from Dublin and good friend of Survival Dad YT. Though I prefer to specialize in all things crypto and decentralized, I still value a good conversation. In fact, if you're in the same train of thought, and enjoy different perspectives on varying topics from regular people, such that may entertain and persuade at your local Irish pub, for example. 
tune in to SDYT the podcast. They're even now playing on YouTube at Survival Dad YT. You can find them on Facebook. You can find them on Stitcher, Spotify, and iHeartRadio as well. And remember, it's a good thing to learn the words of others. Don't forget to be your own author too. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to SDYT the podcast. I'm Porter. I'm your host. Sitting here with Anna, we're talking about balance and learning and, and loyalty, but as it applies to social working, right? So how you integrate into a society as a child, as a parent, as an adult, as a teenager, as a student, as whatever capacity applies. First off, Anna, welcome back. Thank you. You're welcome. Glad to be here. <laughs> yeah. And, and to all of our listeners, obviously, welcome back as well. Anna, you had mentioned earlier as a, a master social worker, is that the correct term, master social worker? I mean, yeah, just a social worker. But yeah, there is a difference between caseworker or a master social worker. So social worker is kind of a broad term. But if you are a master social worker, you focus more on mental health aspects of social work. I see. Where we left off in the last segment, we were talking about basically communicating through different issues, how to reach people that see things differently in a sort of generalized sense. We had attributed that consideration to attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. However, my working theory is that if a lot of people have similar trending or similarly symptomatic disorders, well, then it can't be a disorder anymore because that's the new order of things right? Problem, as I understand it, the issue is how do you communicate through those issues? Because that's what continues to make it a problem. To become, in your experience, more emotionally intelligent or how to communicate through those things, whether it's through therapy or exercises or games or whatever, what considerations are there to help remedy those communication deficits and supplement that? Right, right. So play therapy is something that not everybody, I guess, understands in its fullest capacity. Play therapists offer up either games or art or any kind of activity that is basically drawing the person away from the fact that we're engaging in a therapy session. So we don't really want them to, I don't want to say we don't want them to know that they're not in a therapy session, but how are they reacting? How are they reacting to the game? Because a lot of times that is how they react to everybody. It's very telling all of the characteristics of a kid or of, of a child that's in your, in your care is how angry they get if they are losing the game, if they maybe feel the need to cheat at the game, you know, how they feel really my, my goal oftentimes is to win. I'm not sitting there letting them win and saying, oh, look at you winning. That's so <laughs> great that you win. Because ironically, it's me like I'm trying to win. I need to win this game because I need to see how you're going to respond to me winning it. I see. So I don't want to say that I win every time, but it is not. My brother-in-law actually asked me one time, you know, is it your, do you help people feel better about themselves? Is that like what you do? And I said, no, I don't help anybody feel better about themselves because I would actually feel like I'm doing somebody a disservice by leaving there with them feeling better about themselves because maybe I might feel better about myself as a therapist if they feel more confident about their ability to play a game but it's not ultimately about the game right 
like it's about all of the life skills that that come with it you know the fact that even if you're playing against somebody you can have certain level of you know congratulations i'm happy that you won maybe i'll win next time maybe i'll do even better than i thought i'd do next time if you're doing art if my art is better than your art great that's okay if, if you are really bad at this game, that's okay, too. You know, that gives us an opportunity to be better and to get better at something. And that's what ultimately makes confident people. You know, when you're when you get to be a little bit, you, you feel good about what you do. And the only way you can feel really good about what you do is if inside of you or intrinsically, you feel motivated. Mm. So for a lot of kids, what is the motivation to not act like a savage because <laughs> you're just a kid, right? Sure. Like what is the motivation to get good grades and to want to sit still in class and, you know, like well, what is that motivation? And so you have to, you have to find that. You have to identify that in everybody or you're just simply not going to want to. I like to say with ADHD, it's like, oh, boring things are just so painful. But boring things are painful to anybody, Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's, that's boring. It's just not what you want to do. A lot of kids don't want to be in school. A lot of kids are thinking, why do I need good grades? I don't care to have good grades, you know, especially if their needs are not being met at home, which is a lot of the kids that I work with often. They're, they're just not getting their needs met at home. So sure. they're, they're having a hard time. But, you know, you have to teach them how to communicate and how to feel good about yourself. You don't even need somebody to say, wow, buddy, that was a good painting, which is what, again, if a, if a child paints with me, I never, you'll never hear me say, that's a good painting because they need to, you know, why you can ask questions. Why did you choose those colors? Why did you choose this scene? What were you thinking whenever you're, you know, you did this splash of color onto the side? What was going through your mind at that point? When there's a lot of things that actually make people feel better about something they've created or done when you ask specific questions, as opposed to the parents always just going, good job, buddy. That's great. There's something to be said for positive affirmation too, though. Oh, definitely. Definitely. But the thing is, is then they're not being intrinsically motivated. It's kind of back to that. Not mm. saying there's you're doing anything wrong by saying you're doing a good job because that's totally fine to do that. And it's great to have like that emotional support from somebody. But what makes you feel individual? What makes you feel valued? What makes you feel like you're good at what you just did? And that would be that somebody is paying attention to details of it. Or asking more questions about why you chose that, why you went that route. Because, you know, if you sat there and you painted a whole picture and you really took your time painting it, yeah, you might get an attaboy from one of your parents. But, like, you just spent so much time doing this and this meant a lot to you to do. And so whenever somebody just says, yeah, that's great, you're not getting that, okay, I, I want a little, like, feedback. No, you think it's great. That's great. But what do you think is great about it? Mm-hmm. Well, even as adults, right? Like, oh, honey, I made you this whatever meal or whatever for dinner. Yeah, that's great. I appreciate it. Well, that's cool. I appreciate you appreciating it, but that doesn't tell me anything. What does that mean? Right. And and I think right. a lot of co- conveyances of mm-hmm. qualifiers mm-hmm. changes everything. And it's it doesn't have oh, to right. be overly critical. It doesn't have to be forced. Right. Like you said earlier, you Absolutely. can still be authentic about your feedback. 
And it's also okay, like back to your kid bringing you a painting, it's okay to even say to them, like, you know, oh, it looks like, you know, it got a little messy in this area, you know, it's okay to not be the best at something. It's okay to give a little positive criticism to something too, because nothing is always perfect. Mm -hmm. And as parents, we have a tendency to like, you know, we want everything to go kind of perfect for them. And what's that teaching them about life? Because nobody's going to love them like we do, right? Mm -hmm. No teacher, no wife, nobody is ever going to love you quite like you love your own child. You know, so it's like letting them know that, you know, it's okay to fail. It's okay to communicate. You don't have to get like upset about anything either. So like my son, for example, this is Sometimes not what everybody thinks that you should do, but like if he loses something, I never tell him, oh, maybe you'll get it next time or, you know, whatever. I always tell him, you know what, that kid either wanted it more than you or he tried just a little bit harder than you tried. And so like next time, maybe you're going to be the kid that wanted it the most and maybe you're going to be the kid that tried just a little harder, but what's the motivation if not you know we want to shelter them from real feelings and is that really helping them be an adult yeah but what does that do for their validation or ability to self-validate even i maybe didn't try as hard as the other person because i lost focus or actually didn't try as hard or or any other number of things and that may be applicable Mm -hmm. however maybe i did i really Mm -hmm. tried and i'm really frustrated that i didn't win or do well or whatever Mm-hmm. And then to get told, well, what do you mean I didn't try hard enough? Right. You know? So I would argue in that instance that whatever you're doing might not mean enough to you, though. Maybe you're doing that particular thing to appease somebody else. Mm, I see. I, because I do feel like when you're doing something that, again, you're intrinsically motivated to do, like you want to do it. You don't really care that other people in your life like it or don't like it. You want to do it. And it's almost a thing where if you do want it that bad, you want it that bad. Yeah. There's a story, not to derail your train of thought. It's called The Richest Man in Babylon. Have you ever heard mm-hmm. of it? Have you ever read it? Uh, I have heard of it, but I've never read it. But I have heard of it before, yes. Okay. So it's it's not a big book for any of our listeners, actually. It's, it's quite thin. I don't know how many, a couple dozen pages or so. But it's big print and pictures, which is always nice. Anyways, in there, there's this kid who wants to learn to make money. And the advice that he gets is you got to track, I don't remember the guy's name. You got to track down this guy. He's the richest man in Babylon. Mm-hmm. See, okay, cool. I'm going to find him. He's going to teach me how to make money. So this sort of, I don't know, typecasted Aladdin type character wanders through the market trying to track this guy down, the richest guy. Well, this guy's got jewelry. This guy's got markets. This guy's got fruits and foods and dates and whatever. He must be the richest guy. No, 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 no. Finally tracks down the richest guy in Babylon. Well, takes him to the shoreline and says, there's water out there on the beach. Walk out to the water till I tell you to stop. The guy walks out there, dips his feet in, and comes back, and he says, no, 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 no. I didn't tell you to stop. Go back out there and walk into the water. And the guy's like, well, this is a strange lesson, but all right, sure, and walks out there. Gets knee ways deep, turns around and comes back and says, this is pointless. He says, no, 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 I didn't tell you to stop. Go out there and walk out. And the guy walks out there and gets to his waist, and he's like, well, I didn't hear it. He keeps walking, gets out to his chest, just around his armpits, turns around and yells to the guy on the beach, now is considerably further away and says, this is as far as I can go. Mm -hmm. He says, I didn't tell you to stop. Keep pushing yourself and go. And eventually he gets to a point where his toes aren't touching the bottom anymore. And his face is bobbing up and down out of the surface. And he starts sputtering water. And as his ear breaks the top, he hears, all right, come back. 
And the guy gets out there and he says, I nearly drowned. Why didn't you help me? You saw I needed help. Until you want to succeed as bad as you wanted to breathe, you're never going to do it. So I think you're right. There's something to be said for intrinsic motivation. Um, but, but recognizing it and learning that doesn't always mean you've got to hit rock bottom. Sometimes it just requires the, right. the right expression of the problem set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And I think that comes back down to what we were talking about earlier. And that's that you don't have to be good at everything. Find self-confidence and being good at the things that you're good at. Mm-hmm. things that you really are automatically good at, you know, things that, and not even necessarily good at, but things that motivate you. Parents are going to mm-hmm. push all sorts of inputs on you. Society's going to push all sorts of inputs on you for the sake of exposure. Mm-hmm. You know, it's important to learn to socialize. So you're going to play on a sports team and ballet and gymnastics, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so you go and try all these things. And this is obviously in a sort of ideal environment where you've got the money, the time, the opportunity, the training sets, yeah. whatever. But how do you balance that? Like finding what you're good at and what you're passionate about with what's being pushed on you for the sake of experience and exposure. And how do you, how do you manage that? Or how do you recommend managing that? So, you know, I think that a lot of parents have this desire, need, whatever to, you know, like you said, expose kids to as many things as they can be exposed to. And I agree. I've, I've had my son in in quite a few things just to see, you know, what's his response to certain aspect. He's done a lot of different things, golf, soccer, football, and more recently he's been doing sailing, sailing boats. Mm. And what I have found in what he's done is that he is more motivated by individual sports. Oh, I see. So, yes. So anything that where he has to depend on his own self, he doesn't depend on the team doing better. He just knows that he is in control of how this outcome looks. It's not the team that's in control of it. It's he himself. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is a lot of parents are like, okay, what, what would make me a really good parent is if I make sure that, like you said, he's exposed to all these things, but really exposed is is great and it's fine there's nothing wrong with it you know our thing too is that he's got to make it through the season if he wants to commit to something but a lot of times parents are putting too much on themselves mm-hmm. there's there, it's too much it's it's too many things it's too many activities they really just want you they want your advice they want your thoughts they want to be able to ask you questions and sometimes you find yourself in a place where you can start to notice Okay, like this is what he likes to do. This is what is literally driving him. So he's gotten into sailing. I don't sail. My husband doesn't sail. We don't know anything about sailing boats. We don't know what they're called, what they do, nothing. But he does. And he literally will jump out of bed in the morning for it. And I've never seen him do that before. So I would say that I agree with you. Exposure is really important. But I also think that, you know, letting them know that let's take all of your life to cultivate what you're going to do when you're an adult, Mm -hmm. because there's too much kids being 18 years old. I feel so bad for 18 year olds in, in any world because they've just been told what to do, told what to do, told what to do. And then all of a sudden you're 18 and you're an adult. So like go out and do the damn thing and it's like do what damn thing i don't (laughs) have no idea what i'm doing or 
or anything because my whole life, everybody has told me what to do. Teachers, parents, society has told me what to do this whole time. So Uh I feel very passionately about that instead of like pushing our kids into like, got to do football now, got to do baseball now, got to get these things done. It's more about what is driving them because they should be learning about themselves this whole time in the process, you know, in the process. And and it's kind of our responsibility as parents, because you know what, in the school system, the school system is so antiquated. It's not been changed since factory workers were factory workers. So we're still cranking out factory workers in the school system. That's all we're doing is cranking out factory workers. People don't know how to think for themselves, do things for themselves. They're just, okay, today is Friday and every eighth grade classroom in this whole school is learning about Christopher Columbus, you Mm -hmm. know? And so it's like, there's no room for people to ask more questions or do more project because whenever it's Monday, we're not learning about Christopher Columbus anymore. We're learning about somebody else. So as parents, it's like our responsibility to be, okay, what makes our child unique and different? Not about what I want for them, not about what society wants for them, but what are those qualities, those very specific qualities that every single person has that makes them awesome? The thing is, when you're being authentic, people can't not like you. It's literally impossible because how do you not like a straight shooter? Do you not like somebody that you know what to expect when you see them every time? Like, even if you don't always agree with them, if you know what to expect, you you just like them. You like that person. They're, they're true to who they are. Well, it helps and encourage so, safety and security, too, I think. Totally. And especially for men, you know, like this is a society where I feel like men and boys are just lost. Like, it's <laughs> I mean, it used to be like it's a man's world, but now it's like it. It's like all about women in a way in that, you know, I just feel bad for boys and men sometimes too, where it's like you guys have a place and you have a purpose and you're supposed to be a man and a man is takes care of your son, your family. You have very specific things and, and you're needed. You're needed to be who you are. And I think that a lot of men in this day and age are like, uh oh, I better not be fully who I am because then people might think things about me. And I just think it's just important if society could just everybody could be their authentic selves. I think that people would find a lot less anger because you just are who you are. (laughs) You're not trying to put on a face or be inauthentic. And a lot of times you're like you even say with this podcast, you're even able to have opinions that are dissenting opinions, but people are just true to themselves. Right. Yeah. And and I think a lot of that ability to build relationships in that capacity, but in terms of depth of understanding, like you said, you know what you're going to get. So there's, there's a certain amount of safety there. And and I think if Maslow were around, he'd have something to say about it. And and I think that counts for quite a bit. And it really even regards to, well, I guess we'll call it a, a social currency. You know, like if that's what you're trafficking out into society, the the ability to just be authentic and be you and be vulnerable and understand that people may take advantage of that and then how to process and deal with that, or that you may be an asshole Mm -hmm. and somebody may perceive you to be that way, even if you don't intend to come across that way Mm -hmm. and how Mm -hmm. to deal with those things, how to rely on a team, how to rely on yourself and build confidence. and, And I think that's 
a lot to ask of, of anybody, mm-hmm. but that's your responsibility as a parent. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a position where that's not something you're willing to get into and you don't think you're ready for that, obviously some schools of thought say abort, adopt, whatever. My, my personal opinion, not to get into any of the politics around it, but my personal opinion is nobody's ready for that. You know, so you're in great company, uh, billion strong. And, (laughs) you know, like I I wasn't ready. I don't know that I ever will be or was. Right. Agreed. But that's one of those moments where you've just sort of got to take action that we talk to off the air. So let's take a minute and and jump into that. There's so many different, almost at times, overwhelming opportunities or options even to exercise your ability to make decisions and and choices. Mm -hmm. But at some point, you just have to start, which then means you got to be willing to understand and accept the risk, whatever right. that tolerance or threshold is, but you just got to start. So how do you encourage taking action? I assume, let me back up first. I assume play therapy is primarily for kids? Yeah, play therapy is really for kids. Okay, so let, let's frame through that real quick then. So how do you encourage assessing and accepting different levels of risk and managing being overwhelmed and different factors and different controls on your own to rely on yourself and self-confidence to just start. How do you encourage that in your experience? What's worked? Mm-hmm. Do you mean working specifically in the capacity with children? Well, working specifically through play therapies, just for the sake of a, a framing to the question. But if that applies more specifically to just kids, then yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so play therapy is for children. I would say that when you get to be an adult, uh, it's not really that necessary to have those tools, I guess you would say, in the way of helping somebody better their environment. Because mm. a lot of times with children, this is a, a thing that not everybody wants to hear, but with children, children are mirror images of their parents. So a lot of times working in play therapy is gets a little frustrating for me because a lot of times parents are like, oh my gosh, there's something so wrong with my child, please fix them. <laughs> and then they're going, don't, don't talk to me. I'm not going to come. I'm not going to be part of the session, part of the therapy, not going to do any of that, but please fix my child. And mm. so I would say for the, for the sake of play therapy, that is one of the most challenging things because I would honest to God say that a lot of times it needs to be either a joint effort mm-hmm. or there's something in the child's environment that needs to sometimes change. But I also think that play therapy is a really good tool, especially for children that have like divorced parents because it allows them kind of like a screen where maybe it doesn't even always occur to them what they're thinking or feeling. But while they're busy doing something, they might just say something that you can kind of expand upon. Mm-hmm. I would say that, you know, how my things usually start is like I was telling you, I try to win, I try to be better, and I try to be the best so that they can feel those feelings. But as time goes on, we don't necessarily use those tools as often. We don't necessarily always use a game or art or anything. You know, the hope is that it would get to the point where we could just have a little chat. If they want to always do it, they can. But, you know, the the whole idea behind it is to try to remove that kind of screen that's, that's in there 
Well, I imagine um, it's a lot of balancing what to think. Like these are the rules of the game. These are the parameters and controls with, with how to think. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas in whatever public, private, Montessori trade, whatever type school now, mm-hmm. a lot of it is here's what to think. Right. You've got to figure out right. how to do it later. Good luck, man. You know, and, and I think in, in balancing that, you called it a, a higher order of thinking where you're able to critically assess and prioritize your responses, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If play therapy for kids is meant to fluidly integrate different lessons for building resiliency and problem solving and communicating, and building emotional intelligence through games, but it's not necessarily for adults, well, how do you recommend doing that for adults that never had an opportunity to go through play therapy? Well, here's what I would say to that. I do think that adults need a screen like that. I do think that. I think that a lot of adults that have never had any form of therapy before don't really think, they don't really know how to start, how to get there, what to do, who to look for. When I was first looking for a therapist for my own self about 10 years ago, I felt the same way. I wasn't really sure who to look for, what I what I really needed or anything like that. And what I found was there are forms of therapy that are still for adults. So there are lots of, you know, you can be in art therapy, for example, as an adult. You could be sitting there doing art therapy. But that's in, in an adult form, that's not necessarily like a therapist would be asking you questions. It would be more like you go home on your own time and you should paint. And when you're painting and you're sitting in silence and you're not looking at your phone all the time or you're not, you don't have like music saying lyrics while you're painting, you know, so you're not being told what to think in any way. Mm-hmm. You're just painting or whatever. It could be a lot of things. It could be rowing a boat, anything methodical that's quiet. It could be going for a run or a walk Something that you enjoy to do would be more beneficial. But mm. when you get to be an adult, I would say that, that your therapist would then say, I'm going to challenge you to be doing these things on your own. Because when you're a child, you don't really know how to do those things. And when you're an adult, I'm not saying you do either. Right. But that's the challenge. That's the point. So you're not really behind the curve if you weren't exposed to it at a younger age. Say as an right. adult no. comparison. No, I, yeah, no, I wouldn't say you were behind the curve in any way if you weren't, you know, given it as a, as a child. I do think that for children, a big part of play therapy is so that they're not sitting there thinking something's wrong with them. Oh, you know, sure. I think that, sure. I think that that's kind of the big underlining thing of it is just that, okay, we're just going to go hang out with somebody and play a game. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm sitting in a therapy session. Cause what kid would be, again, back to the motivation, the int- intrinsic motivation is that you are not really going to care to go with a therapist and just talk. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not really what you feel like doing. But if somebody says, hey, you want to come play a game with me for a little bit? then they're always like, totally, yeah, <laughs> definitely want to go play a game. And I'm going to beat you this time. That's what they, <laughs> sure. Because <laughs> sure. they know I'm not, I'm not really a competitive person by nature. I wish I was more competitive, but I'm not really that competitive, but they all think that I'm as competitive as can be because, <laughs> you know, I need for them to be mad. That's really what it comes down to. My, my goal is to make them mad because well, I want us to be able to work through that. Well, yeah, you have to identify the triggers, 
Otherwise, mm-hmm. you're never going to know. And well, I don't want to say you're never going to know because you'll figure it out eventually. Well, yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> maybe just yeah. later in, in life. But I've got a buddy to your point where you take time to yourself and do something methodical or whatever. He, he refers to that as the fortress of solitude. Mm-hmm. And you know how Superman went up to where I don't know wherever this was in the Arctic or somewhere, uh, a bunch mm-hmm. of ice crystals and whatever. And uh, that's where the entire knowledge base of Krypton was stored and where he would go to learn things and reflect and process. Yes. So important. It's so important to be in silence and, and to what you said about that too, with the, with the kids and the triggers and stuff, that's what is important when you go to, I guess, therapy for adults, mm-hmm. what I would do. So like what I'm also doing in a capacity is working for hospice and I am mostly support for caregivers because often the person that's passing is not cognitively there. I'm not saying that's every time, certainly never true if you have cancer or something like that. I have lots of conversations with people that are dying of cancer that are perfectly able to tell me all the things they need to tell me. Oftentimes it's the caregivers that are experiencing a lot of the intense emotions usually they're more intense about it than the patient could ever dream of being is almost always the caretaker. Mm -hmm. Yes. But even it's funny because even of the ones that, you know, are, are okay. It seems like even they are less in crisis than the caregivers are. Mm. The caregivers are always seem to be the most in crisis of the people. Let's take a break for a minute. Sit tight for a second. We'll be back on SDYT, the podcast. Hey, everyone. It's Dax here. just wanted to take a moment and give a shout out to my wife, Julie. She is a uh, artist of sorts, but she has a Facebook page called The Bee and the Bear Creations. And what that page is for is basically if you wanted to do a specialized item like a tumbler or a hat or a vinyl or a decal or a shirt you can go there you can uh, ask some questions look through the wares but then give a dm and try to sort it out um, and then work and adjust pricing but if you're interested in something like that go ahead like her page it's the bee and the bear creations on facebook um, so go enjoy you haven't even told us the name yet. What are we supposed to tell our families? All the metadata. Have you considered the blockchain? And then when are we supposed to tell all our friends anyway? How are you going to ensure that all of the listeners know where to find anything? How am I supposed to tune in to a podcast that I've saved to my library and now has a different name? How are people going to find what were the episodes? Why are you changing the name to begin with? What about the listeners? Well, now what? Guys, guys, I got it. All right, it's going to be a phased approach. We're going to ensure between April and what's going to be our July 4th interview on SDYT, the podcast, to transacting value. It fits better. It fits our market. It fits our niche. It fits our intentions better. It's still real people with different perspectives talking over shared values. I'll take care of it. SurvivalDadYT at gmail.com is still the active email address. Facebook profile, the Instagram profiles, the TikTok profiles, everywhere you've been accessing this media stays the same. I'm still your host. For now, this is still SDYT the podcast. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to SDYT the podcast. I'm Porter. I'm your host. And I'm sitting here with Anna Willis. We've been talking about all sorts of stuff, largely revolving more recently around play therapy, arguably therapy as a whole whether it's self-therapeutics or supplementing or complementing your efforts through somebody else's ability to help therapeutize your life. (laughs) But first of all, before we get into picking up any of that stuff from where we left off prior to the break, to all of our listeners, welcome back. 
Anna, my friend, welcome back. Hi, thank you so much. <laughs> Hello. So what we <laughs> what we left off with, we were talking about hospice at that moment and how you support the caregivers within, uh, I guess we'll call it the hospice program or, or initiative. It got me thinking from what you said earlier on in the interview, you were talking about that you focused on obviously play therapy with primarily children, but that you've also worked with homeless people. You've also worked with hospice uh, people in hospice care, which now apparently more specifically means the caregivers themselves. What sort of overlap, what sort of considerations are there when you're talking about feeling misunderstood or to have others see you as your authentic self and not be misunderstood? When I worked with the homeless community, I was surprised in more ways than a million. (laughs) Um, It's very interesting to see the spirit of human resiliency in people. It's amazing to see that when people really, really want something, that they're just pretty seamlessly able to accomplish it. If, back to the intrinsic motivation, if it's something that they really, really want. Mm -hmm. So what I've realized and what frustrates me sometimes is that, of course, with homelessness comes almost always drug use. I didn't see a single person that came through. Oh, I take that back. One person came through that did not have any drug addiction. Every single other person that came into this homeless coalition had some kind of drug addiction. The one person that did not was a 60-year-old man who I determined after speaking to for several sessions was undiagnosed autistic, Mm. which was so surprising to me because shocking, really, if anything, because you only see autism as something I feel like that seems like maybe people in their 30s and younger have. So it was really interesting to try to identify what was going on with him because there was no drug use, but he had a hard time kind of really socializing with people. And, you know, he was just a little different. I mean, in a funny kind of quirky way, but a little bit of an oddball, you know, he's Mm -hmm. just a little different than all the men that he lived with in the house. So all the men did not get him, didn't understand him and, and that sort of thing. And I remember thinking that I felt, I don't want to say I felt bad for him because I try not to ever feel bad for clients that I have because why, first of all, what good does it do to feel bad for them? Sure. It never, it's never provoking any kind of action or making anything better to just feel sorry for somebody. So that's never what I I try to do. And I would say that this man in particular was the first time I was going, you know what? I can't ever feel bad for somebody again. This is not me helping them, me feeling pity for them. But one thing that I found was that the people in the homeless coalition very, very often felt very misunderstood, not by being homeless, ironically, but more that they had a lifetime of feeling misunderstood, which is why they turn to these types of friends and these types of activities and, you know, often had families that maybe didn't really care what their outcomes were or things of that nature. And what I found was probably it was a 50-50 thing. You know, some people were just as apt to come in and go back on their way again. And there were lots of people that came in and out that 
that was what they wanted. They really, really just simply wanted to live in a tent. Hmm. There was this one girl in particular that we would bring in from the tent constantly. And to the point that then it was, okay, we can't keep bringing her in and doing this. We're not really actually helping her because we're just doing what her grandma wants. Her grandma in that particular case wanted her out of the, out of the tent. But, you know, just generally speaking, most of those people just really felt misunderstood. Like they couldn't contribute to society because they didn't have the confidence to. They didn't think that they were worthy to contribute to society. Mm -hmm. They just felt like the only thing they were worth was just sitting in a tent and doing drugs. So the argument is that doesn't mean you have to run right out and be like productive which is a lot of times what people don't like to hear. A lot of times people want to think, oh, they're homeless. Those bums need to just go get a job, Mm -hmm. you know, and that would solve everything. Can't believe they're out there just acting like they're homeless when they could just go get a job. My argument is that most of the people I encountered maybe did not have a physical impairment, you know, so like it's easy to look at them and think, go get a job. But what I realized is that they literally didn't think they were capable of that life. I had a girl that, you know, her mom would live in and out of cars all her life. Just get an apartment, live in a car, get an apartment, live in a car. And so then she thought that she took more pride in living somewhere because of that. But at the same time, her mindset was always like, well, worst case scenario, I'll go live in my car. Right. You know, and so the thing is, for most of us, that's not our mindset. I'm not saying that you won't just go with the motions. Like, uh, you know, if you have to live in your car, you have to live in your car. I'm not saying that you won't go through those motions. But if you've never been in that place, then it, it's not really in your line of thought process. You right. know what I mean by sure. that? Like, As of course, option. you're a survivalist and you'll do what you can do. But like, that's not in your general line of, well, worst case scenario, I'll go live in my car. So, you know, again, it was feeling useful. Like, how do you feel useful? And how you feel useful is that you build up that confidence. How do you build up that confidence? Well, I'll tell (laughs) you. You have a growth mindset or you can have a fixed mindset. There's only two types of mindsets that you can possibly have. Okay. What's the difference? Okay. So a growth mindset will welcome failure. And it will see it as a way to experience big growth. Okay. So every time you fail, you think, oh my gosh, that's totally okay that I failed. Like if anything, I'm actually kind of a little bit glad that I failed because often what we find is that failure produces something bigger than you could have even ever imagined in your head. You think that you're capable of this. And you're going for it and then you fail and you're like, oh my God, okay, well, I guess I wasn't capable. But then often you're thinking, you know, but I'm driven by that. I want to do that still anyway. You try again and you often end up being mind blown. So my daughter, she's three and my son is nine and she is in the stage where she wants to run through and knock down whatever he's building. (laughs) Okay. And just for and and she thinks it's funny and all the things and you know he gets really frustrated. Well, I started telling him and not that that's okay that she does that. Of course I, you know, have my own things that she, you know, she has to sit and time out and things. But I do end up telling him when things like that happen. I'm like, "You know what? It doesn't seem like it, but I guarantee you now that she smashed that, 
And now that you have to start from the ground up again, I bet you anything, you're going to come up with something that was way cooler than the first time because you already know what was possible. Mm -hmm. And so now you're going to take what was possible and make that even better than it was before. So when you got those two types of mindsets, you got the growth mindset and it welcomes that failure because it's like, you know what? Actually, I'm glad I failed because I know that it's going to be better. A fixed mindset is the other mindset. And that's where you just give up and you say, because you're thinking to yourself, I failed. Yikes. And that says something that speaks to my character. It speaks to like who I am as a person because I failed. Failure is a flaw is what you think when you're in a fixed mindset that, you know, you, you are flawed. So, oh my gosh, I better shut, shut this whole entire thing down. Because mm. I'm flawed as a person because I have failed. Between a okay. fixed mindset and, and a growth mindset, how do you bridge that? Because it sounds more advantageous to develop a growth mindset, but that doesn't mean everybody has it or it's going to work for everybody to maintain it. So a growth mindset is something that you have to work on every day and every time. You have to tell yourself when you fail, you're not just going to wake up tomorrow and have a growth mindset. It is something that you have to set yourself up for. As a process. So as a process. So for me, I have ADHD for you. I'm sure I don't want to speak for you, but you know, it feels like you're kind of going up this mountain that feels like, you know, I saw with ADHD, somebody walking in the ocean and then there's somebody walking in the sand next to them. And the person walking in the ocean is going, why is it so easy for them to walk? Oh, I see. You're, you know, treading through the ocean, trying, trying to get there. So you know, I would say that just like with any habit that you're trying to fix or you're trying to break, you got to just be 1% better than you were yesterday. Mm. So if you're trying to achieve that growth mindset, that's not to say that the next time you fail, you're not like, wow, I'm a big failure. You know, like I hate myself for this. I can't believe I put myself in this position to fail again and people might laugh or people might see. But if you can put yourself in that position and think, but is it okay? Is it good or is it bad? Mm -hmm. And you think to yourself, of course, the first thought you have is it's terrible. It's horrible. It's the worst thing ever. What do you mean? Is it good or is it bad? But when you really sit with, is it good or is it bad? You start to realize that this human experience is 50% good and 50% bad. Sure. You know, like it doesn't matter who you are, what you're doing. It feels like you're always want to get all your eggs out of your basket and then you're going to feel okay. Mm -hmm. But no eggs are out of the basket ever. Like you're just always feeling like you're doing that more and more again and again and again. Yeah. And so that's okay. We can handle it. We're resilient. All humans have a resilient spirit. Everybody has the capacity to pull on their bootstraps. And that's the idea behind social work. When I first started my social work, that was the first thing they drilled in our head. All humans are resilient. All humans have a resilient spirit. We just have to find that. We have to locate that within them and help them find that for themselves. Oh, sure. Like the turtle in Kung Fu Panda when Poe gets to the top of the mountain. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yes. Got exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Finally, had the noodle dream. Yep. Yes. Yes. I'm with you. And, and you know what? When you take action, you either fail or not. So, like, there's only two things that yep. can happen when you go to take action. You either win or you fail. 
And when you fail, you will always learn something every single time, mm-hmm. every time. It is impossible to fail and not think, not learn something from it. And again, back to authenticity, like if you're not failing and you're not okay with failing sometimes, like how can you be authentic? How can you be loyal to who you are if you're not okay with it and you can't identify that it's okay? Well, let me stop you there for a second. You said it's impossible not to learn when you fail. A guarantee of learning when you fail, for example. Only if you are aware of the lessons inherent in the failure. Mm-hmm. Or if you're exposed to them, to think about them mm-hmm. uh, as opportunities. Because otherwise, like you said, if you take a failure as a failure and you're like, man, that's a big L, you mm-hmm. may not see what you're able to learn in that moment. So there, there mm-hmm. may be that. But yeah, I guess to your point, there is something you can learn. You just may not mm-hmm. have learned it yet. Right. And I would argue that you're not processing the failure if you're just sitting there saying, oh, that's a failure. Because the thing is, is I really do have to argue that there is something to learn in every single failure. It's Mm -hmm. just you have to be open to the fact that that's okay. Sure. And I think that if you don't think it's okay to fail, then that would probably be like the first thing that you that a person would need to to process really is just that it's okay to fail. Everybody fails. If you don't think other people fail, then they're not being their authentic self. Right. Because everybody does. Well, I mean, luckily we have social media to be authentic. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's a tricky thing to balance too. We can, we can touch on this in a, in a different episode, uh, assuming you've got the time, but that's a tricky thing to balance too, especially now the direction things are going tech and the digital space is such a huge environment and a huge influence for people, children, adults, adolescents across the board, except maybe senior citizens to a degree, but well, this is what I'm seeing. So it's gotta be as close to reality as, as what I can think is reality, you know, like it's, it's the same sort of thing. Well, everything, and this was 20, 30 years ago. Everything I see on the news, man, that poor country, that poor family, that poor child, this whatever, that must be the what it's like. No. Yeah, yes, but no, not right. in its entirety. Yes, exactly. You know, people are still just trying to survive and live and thrive right. and do their things and pick flowers right. and cook food and make bread or whatever people do. Mm-hmm. You know, but you're not going to see that on the news. Right. And it's the That's same sort so of thing right. now what you're seeing on Instagram. It's not a new concept. People being fake online, news media has been doing fake things for decades. Every, and, yep, and, and, and at yep. the risk of any, I guess, Trumpy coin phrases, right? Like mm-hmm. fake news being what it is, is not new. Right. It's just a right. new platform. That's right. Yeah. So right. It, it'll be interesting to see where it goes and how to, how to balance the two and increase awareness to learn from failures and identify and, and be authentic uh, right. and build self-confidence. But, but for the time being, I, I really appreciate you being able to carve out some time in your afternoon and, and talk through a lot of this stuff. So for any of our listeners that want to find out more about any of these topics, what resources, what websites are you familiar with? So there are two resources that I really, really love. There is a guy who is an LCSW and he is called the ADHD Dude. And he is a therapist and he has a son who has ADHD. And he has some awesome tools and tips about dealing with it as both a parent from a parent aspect and identifying what children might experience if they have it also. And there's also a podcast that I listen to called The Life Coach School from Brooke Castillo. 
And I think that she has some amazing thought provoking things. So I definitely have both of those things. And And of course, I am currently working on my website and my own company, but that's kind of in the works right now. So okay, um, well, I look forward to seeing it come to fruition. Yeah, Yeah. once, once it does, that'd be pretty cool. Yes. The podcast that you had talked about, is that exclusive oh, to yeah, Apple no, or you can find there, that anywhere? Yeah, there it's on any podcast. The Life Coach School is on any podcast. The ADHD guy is on like social media, like uh, um, Instagram and Facebook. I see. Okay. All right, cool. Well, great. And for any of our listeners that want to hear more about any of these topics that we covered today or have critiques or any insights that you want to contribute, feel free to send us an email at survivaldadyt at gmail.com. Send us a message on Facebook or Instagram at survivaldadyt, Twitter at survivaldadyt1, or on TikTok as well. You can track us down there. But for the time being, and I appreciate your time, thank you very much. And if you've got more opportunities throughout the year and you want to jump back on, feel free to let us know. That'd be pretty legit. And all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. But with that, Folks, I appreciate it. I'm Porter. I'm your host. And that was SDYT, the podcast.